0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'll be talking about the impact of racism on child development and behavior. So I want to pay respect and acknowledge that all of us live on the lands of the indigenous nations of North America. And I wanna pay respect to the Ohlone Nation, their ancestors and their elders in the Bay Area. And as I said, I'm bringing you greetings from the land of the Chickasaw Nation. Uh, For those of you who know whose land you currently live on or whose land you were born on, I'm gonna ask you to acknowledge your indigenous uh, ancestors uh, in the chat box, please, as we go along, if the chat is open, I'm not sure if it's open or not. But we continue to acknowledge the truth of the violence that has perpetuated uh, against our American Indian and Alaska Native brothers and sisters in this country and the elders in the name of this country. And we're committed to uncovering the truth and uh, highlighting their voices. I also want to pay respect and honor to our ancestors who uh, were terrorized during the MAFA, which is the African Holocaust. That includes the invasion of the African continent by colonial powers, the kidnapping um, and enslavement of hundreds of millions of African people and those who uh, lost their lives during the transatlantic slave trade. I also want to highlight the recent uprising in anti-Asian violence in this country and anti-Asian racism. It isn't anything new, it's new to some people, but we've had anti-Asian racism and violence in this country since the 1800s. In fact, uh, some of our Chinese ancestors and Japanese ancestors were actually slaves in the United States. So, uh, and many women of Chinese descent were enslaved in sex brothels and in this, and there were sex slavery during the 1800s in the Wild West and Colorado and Utah and California. So we highlight this anti-Asian racism, we speak out against it. And I love this picture from the New York Times where the young woman has a sign that says, Asian is not a virus, racism is. Because I have a talk that I do nationally called racism a societal pathogen. So we speak up and we speak out against anti-Asian racism. And I also wanna dedicate this talk to Dr. Aisha Khoury. This is someone I do not know, but her story is really compelling and has touched my heart. She is an internal medicine physician who uh, was hired by Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine, which had a social justice program. And uh, she was um, given the, uh, the responsibility of teaching medical students about racism last summer. And when she did, someone was offended by her lecture and she lost her job. They fired her for teaching about racism, even though she was told to teach about racism. So I bring this story up because those of us who are physicians of color, who engage in education and advocacy against racism are putting ourselves at risk every day. We're putting ourselves at risk. So I just want to uplift Dr. Curry in her work and her courage. So I am, here are my disclosures y'all. I actually have a disclosure as a developmental pediatrician which like never happens. So I'm now an expert consultant for understood.org, the website um, as of last month, February. It ain't been that long, but I'm not gonna discuss anything from understood and I'm not gonna be talking about any voodoo or off label products. I identify as a Black or African-American cisgender woman. I experience gendered racism on a regular basis, and that's the intersectionality of racism and sexism. And I'm also a member of the lowest racial caste in the United States society. These are all my disclosures, and all of these experiences shape how I approach this topic. And I want to thank you in advance for, (laughs) excuse me please, Giving us permission today to talk about a topic that nobody likes to talk about in mixed company, I'm gonna thank you in advance and invite you to bring your openness, flexibility, and especially your empathy and compassion to today's session. Um, in my professional and personal opinion, our lack of cross-racial and cross-cultural empathy and compassion is what contributes to the ongoing racial trauma that many of us experience in this country and continues to perpetuate the system of racism and white supremacy. And I'm also thanking you in advance for allowing yourself to grow in this experience by becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable. By sitting in our uncomfortable feelings, it gives us an opportunity to actually grow, learn and advance as human beings. Now, I've got some cautionary statements. If at any time during this talk, you feel any of these following um, uh, emotions? You might feel singled out, attacked, silenced, accused, judged. You might feel angry, scared, or outraged. And when you have those feelings, you might be attempted to become defensive. You might be attempted to shut down my camera and put me on mute. Uh, you might be fo- you don't want to focus on intentions and not the impact of your actions. You might want to just want to shut me down altogether and do your epic notes. But instead of doing that, I'm going to invite you to try one of these strategies. Maybe. You know maybe you text a friend and say gosh you know i'm feeling really uncomfortable saying this but or maybe you turn to a friend that's in the same room with you and say you know can you help me understand whether i'm my my thinking might be uh problematic um there are a number of strategies so the symptoms and the reactions that i described here are what Dr. Robin Angelou, uh, Dr. Robin, yeah, D'Angelo defines as white fragility. White fragility is a sociological construct that she developed as a sociologist to describe the reactions and the behaviors of many whites when they are confronted with issues of race and racism. I also would like to caution others in the audience who have experienced racial trauma that whenever we engage in, in, um, in uh, discussions about race and racism your trauma symptoms may be reawakened. You could also get triggered. So just like white fragility can be triggered, uh, racial trauma can be triggered. So some of the experiences, uh, some of the um, symptoms of uh, racial trauma is like re-experiencing distress of the events or hyperarousal, chronic stress, negative emotions, vigilance, or just avoiding, not even want to talk about it at all. And there are a lot of evidence ways of managing racial trauma. Um, There's evidence on mindfulness activities and spiritual practices as well as prayer and mantra um, to help reduce the symptoms of racial trauma. Also practicing self-care is really important and doing things that you enjoy that make you happy. Uh, Learning to be aware and recognize your symptoms of racial trauma, that's really important. And then also engaging activism, like taking an active role rather than a passive role in combating racism can also be effective in combating the symptoms of racial trauma. And if you look at the symptoms of racial trauma, don't they look like PTSD? They look very similar to PTSD, don't they? So this is what we're gonna do today. We're gonna describe racism um, in general, just gonna do a very quick overview of racism and its levels and forms. We're gonna talk about how racism affects child development behavior. That's the bulk of the talk. And then we're gonna talk about methods of reducing the impact of racism in healthcare. So what is racism? So racism is an organized and dynamic caste system in which the dominant racial group based on this hierarchical ideology develops and sustains structures and behaviors Of that privilege the dominant racial caste while simultaneously disempowering and removing resources from subordinate racial castes, okay? So racism is a caste system based on this social uh, category of race uh, that was invented. Uh, Racism has three levels, institutionalized, interpersonal and and internalized. It has a lot of different forms. There's colorblind, cultural, gendered racism, environmental and and, uh, medical racism. So when you look at the three levels of racism, we have to thank uh, Dr. Kamara Jones for for developing this framework. So racism, overall, this overarching um, theme of institutionalized racism, is also called structural racism and systemic racism. And I consider this form of racism as the threads in the quilt. You know, my great grandmother and my grandmother were quilters. And we have some of their quilts. And these quilts are like 70 years old, 80 years old. And you know what they're held together by? The threads. And that is the thread that holds uh, racism together in our society. And institutionalized racism is what is actually codified in our governments and institutions. It's in our customs, our laws, our traditions, our policies and our practices. And what Dr. Jones uh, suggests, is that uh, institutionalized racism or structural racism can manifest in two ways. Um, you have differential access to goods, services, and opportunities, right, by racial caste. So that could be material conditions like education, housing, employment, healthcare, and environment, which are the social determinants of health, y'all, and access to power, like access to information, resources, and political voice. So there's differential access to these, to these, uh, to these goods, services, and opportunities in our society based on the racial caste that you're in. And then there's interpersonal racism. This is the form of racism that most people think about, that personally mediated racism. Most people in the United States have like a pre kindergarten understanding of racism. They think it's, you know, racial, using racial slurs or just being mean to somebody, and that if everybody would be nice, kumbaya, it'd all go away. That is not the way racism works. Um, And I invite you to actually read articles, read books, watch some documentaries, and, and build your own racial literacy. So interpersonal racism is the prejudice and discrimination that is experienced between members of the dominant racial caste and members of subordinate racial cast. Um, and implicit racial bias are these subconscious racial attitudes that are often opposed to our explicit biases or our conscious racial attitudes. And I see, this is just an oddism. I see implicit racial bias as the soil in which interpersonal racism blooms. And then microaggressions are the acts of interpersonal racism that occur on a regular basis. Then there's internalized racism. Internalized racism is where you drink the Kool-Aid of racism and white supremacy. It is accepting the racist notions that white people are superior and non-white people are inferior. So for BIPOC populations, I forgot to define BIPOC earlier, but BIPOC is a new acronym to describe all peoples of color, all people that don't identify as white in the United States. Excuse me, please. That includes the Blacks, Indigenous, people of color. So that also includes the POC part. Um, it includes uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, Arab Americans. Um, and the the B and the I are there to acknowledge the unique histories that Blacks and Indigenous people have in this country. Okay to highlight that uniqueness. So when people of color, when BIPOC populations believe in their own inferiority and the superiority of whites, that is internalized racism. And when whites believe in their own superiority and the inferiority of people who are not members of their their racial caste, that is also internalized racism. And let me tell you, if you were born in the United States, I promise you, you have internalized racism. You have, all of us have. And if you immigrated here and you've been here more than five years, you have internalized racism, all of us do we have to work every day, every day of our lives to undo it. so for example, in the black community, we have this saying <clears throat> that the white man's ice is colder his sugar is sweeter, and his water is wetter, and there is this idea that whatever white folks have has got to be better than what we have um and so that is internalized racism now, if we look at the different forms of racism. Y'all, there is tons of research on every single form of racism there is. So I'm gonna invite you to read some of the uh, references that are in your handout. Uh, But colorblind racism uh, refers to this belief that racism is no longer a problem um, and that everybody should be treated the same and you should never take race into account in your practices and policies. And this is what I call the three monkey um, uh, a belief in racism. You know, I see no racism, I hear no racism, I do not ever speak against racism. That is colorblind racism. It is the most dangerous form of racism we have today. It is the most prevalent form of racism we have today. And it is a form that developed post-civil rights. Gendered racism is the intersectionality between racism and sexism. And this is what women of color experience on a regular basis. Um, environmental racism are the policies and practices that place non-white people at higher risk for poor environmental health outcomes. So that includes like redlining practices, food deserts, policing practices, etc. Cultural racism is where we view that's really pervasive in society where white is considered to be the norm um, or regular. Or the standard and non-white is the alternative. It's the anomaly. So, you know, like when there are actors on TV, you know, Jesus is white and Moses is white and Cleopatra is white and Santa Claus too. figure about his white, right? That's cultural racism. Um, and then there's medical racism, which is the historical abuse and uh, maltreatment of BIPOC populations, by healthcare providers in this country. In fact, we know historically that modern medicine in the United States was built on the bodies of Black and Indigenous men and women in this country for centuries. And it continues today in Latinx populations, um, uh, uh, Asian American populations, Arab American populations, American Indian and Black American populations. So when you're thinking about racism, I got this, uh, this slide from this, absolutely brilliant bioethicist, Dr. Nyeka Setterman. She's like a beast, y'all. So, but she, I don't know where she got the slide from, but I love this. So if you think of racism as an iceberg, what most people know about racism is really explicit and visible, right? They're thinking about the Archie Bunkers of the world, right? The bigots. But the majority of racism that affects us is under the water. It is the rest, the other 90% of this iceberg that we don't Acknowledge. Okay, so I'm going to be talking today about what's under what's under the water, the part of the iceberg that we don't see. Oh, I'm sorry. It actually came from this um, this uh, well Birth article from um, 2017. I completely forgot. I forgot. Sorry, y'all. Now, how does racism impact child development and health? So, racism. Is, oh, gosh, it didn't come out. Racism is a social determinant of health. In fact, racism is the social determinant of health that undergirds every other social determinant of health. So let's talk about how that works. And this is this is replete in the literature. So if you look at educational qual- access and quality, we know that there is unequal funding in schools that are attended primarily by students of color. We know that in the educational system, overwhelmingly 80% of the teachers are white and female, yet almost 60% of public school students are children of color. Um, And so those uh, cultural uh, dissonance in the classroom contributes to many poor um, educational outcomes in children for a variety of reasons. When we look at economic stability as a social determinant of health, um, because of institutionalized racist practices and the implicit biases of hiring managers, we know that there is higher rates of unemployment and underemployment in Black, Hispanic, and American Indian populations, right? You might be familiar with the name studies. You send out a resume uh, with a name that sounds black, they're 50% less likely to get a call back than the same resume sent out with a person who is, uh, has a name that sounds white. When you look at the society, there is a higher rate of an easier contact with the criminal legal system. We know that there's there's chronic housing segregation that has been in place For decades since the 1930s when redlining became the official policy of the United States government. um, Under the new deal of President FDR so as a result, even though redlining was outlawed, you know, in the 1960s, we still see the health outcomes from historically redlined communities. And if you look at communities of color, they are have higher rates of being uninsured and underinsured and there's fewer medical practices in communities of color across the country. So let's talk about how this affects uh, child development and health. So, so if we look at this one social determinant of health, educational access and quality, we have learned through the data that public school funding, there is a $23 million gap between white and non-white school districts. So we found that school public this is public schools, public school districts that are majority white receive $23 million more money overall per year than than public school teachers that are majority Black or Latinx. Um, So we already talked about the statistics for public school teachers. And what we found is that teachers in public schools overall have a pro-white, anti-Black implicit racial bias, just like the U.S. public does. The U.S. public overall has pro-right, anti-black, anti-Hispanic, anti... anti American Indian implicit racial bias. I am not yet aware of the uh, full data on anti-Arab and anti-Asian implicit racial bias, like national data sets, but I'm sure it ain't different y'all. Also research has found that teachers uh, engage in adultification. Which is perceiving that Black boys and Black girls are actually older and less innocent than their white counterparts. Police officers do the same thing. So as a result, Black boys and Black girls are, are attributed with adult intent. Um, they're perceived to be less need, in less need of protection, and they're more likely to be harshly punished for uh, behaviors they engage in. So for example, there was a case out of uh, North Little Rock, Arkansas, maybe a week or two ago, where a white kindergarten teacher had a kindergarten six-year-old black boy clean out the commodes in the bathroom with his bare hands, unclogging the toilet from poop and toilet paper. And the child was terrorized. And he reported this to his mother and grandmother when the teacher was confronted by school officials. She says, I don't know why I did that. Classic example of harsh punishment. So, we know also by the US Department of Education statistics that Black, Latinx, and American Indian boys are punished more severely and more harshly than white children are. We also know that Black girls in education, public education, are punished at six times the rate of Black girls, are punished at six times the rate of white girls for the exact same uh, uh, dis, uh, infraction. They do the exact same behavior. And we know that black children are overrepresented in the special education system for behavior problems, yet they're underrepresented for developmental disabilities. So when you look at how racism manifests in our educational system through through, uh, public school funding, which is institutionalized racism, and the uh, implicit bias and interpersonal racism from teachers and school officials, This is how it impacts child development and behavior within the school system. You see poor educational outcomes, higher rates of grade repetition, higher rates of school failure, and higher rates of dropout among Black, Latinx, and American Indian populations. So then how does racism shape uh, the the social determinant of health that is healthcare access and quality? Well, we know that among Black and Latinx populations and American Indian populations, there are higher rates of uninsured and underinsured individuals, even with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. That uh, the Affordable Care Act, one of the, one of the um, goals of the Affordable Care Act was try to close the uh, insurance gap among poor people and among communities of color. And although the gap has narrowed uh, between communities of color and non-communities of color, the poor and the less poor, those who are more affluent, the gap still remains. But that means you have less access to preventive care, to, uh, to primary care, and to uh, consistent medical care, and even emergency care. We know that physicians and other health care providers overwhelmingly have pro-white, anti-Black implicit racial bias. They also have, physicians have been found to have anti-Latino and anti-American Indian bias. We know that these negative implicit racial biases contribute to a paternalistic and harsh communication styles between a white physician and patients of color, right? Because, you know, less than 5% of physicians are black, less than 5% of physicians are Latino. The vast majority of physicians are white. And so there, and, and there's a large number of physicians who are Asian American too. Um, but the studies on implicit bias have mostly been performed on white physicians. And so White physicians who have pro-white bias and anti-personal color bias are found to have very harsh and ineffective communication styles with their patients, and they're less likely to refer these patients of color um, for specialized services. For example, children who have been found to have developmental delays, like screening is pretty universal because of the AAP guidelines and insurance reimbursement. But what they found is that white pediatricians who have pro-white bias are less likely to ask follow-up questions to their Black, Latinx, and Asian-American parents um, whose children showed abnormal developmental screeners, they're less likely to refer them to early intervention. And once they get into early intervention, they're less likely to receive developmental evaluations by early intervention providers, even when this child is, is at high risk for developmental delay. Uh, we know the research shows that in the healthcare system um, that Black and Latinx children and Asian-American children whose parents have limited English proficiency are delayed in being diagnosed with developmental disabilities and behavior disorders by their providers who have pro-white bias. And these providers are less likely to refer these children to subspecialty care when parents do not speak English as their primary language. Um, they may speak another language as their primary language, and English may be their secondary or tertiary language. So this is how racism affects child development and behavior through the healthcare system, having a uh, delayed diagnosis of developmental disabilities and less likely to receive the interventions you need. If we look at how racism shapes the social determinant of health that is neighborhood and the built environment, we're gonna talk about redlining. So redlining is a systemic segregation the systematic segregation of neighborhoods by the government in the 1930s. Um, If you've ever read the book, The Color of the Law, I recommend that you read that book. And there's a lot of research out there on redlining in the United States and health outcomes across multiple populations. This was all done as part of the New Deal of the 1930s uh, where President Roosevelt um, wanted to create a fair home mortgage uh, um, system in the United States. To help uh, middle people who were white be able to buy homes, invest in properties, and um, and that helped to establish the the middle class in the United States. So the Homeowners Loan Corporation was created, and what they did was they graded neighborhoods in about 250 cities across the country, and they uh, put them into four categories that each had different colors: blue, green. Um, yellow and red and on the city maps they took markers of different colors and outlined these various neighborhoods and blue was the were the best neighborhoods and those are the neighborhoods that were determined to be mostly white new and suburban and more affluent and they were the lowest risk for economic investment but neighborhoods that were Largely black, largely Latinx, largely immigrant, and largely poor were outlined in maps with a red marker, and they were deemed they were deemed as hazardous. They were high risk economic, uh, economic uh, neighbor, economic investment neighborhoods, even though there was no data to support that. There was no data to support the difference between defaulting on home mortgage loans in red line communities as opposed to the blue and green neighborhoods. In fact, there were equal rates of being able to pay your mortgage on time. However, because these, these communities were overwhelmingly communities of color, they were designated as red. And what this local governments, the city governments, state governments, and federal government did was systematically disenfranchised from these neighborhoods for 50 years. Members of the neighborhoods who lived there could not get loans or credit to for a mortgage. They couldn't buy their homes, nor could they uh, uh, get a loan to establish a business in those communities. And after the civil rights movement, when larger Asian populations came in, Asian populations who wanted to establish businesses or found business ownership as the only field they could get into economically. Those Asian populations, immigrant populations were denied loans to establish businesses in predominantly white neighborhoods. They were given loans to establish businesses in these red line neighborhoods that were predominantly black and Latinx. And what that did was create a, an economic hierarchy and, a, uh, and a, a distrust between business owners and the community. So it just perpetuated racism. Um, we know that race race, racial housing segregation is associated with poor educational, economic, and occupational and health outcomes. Like right? there are higher rates in, in redline neighborhoods of pollution. Uh, even though they do not produce the greenhouse gases, they are victimized by greenhouse gases and get sicker from them at higher rates. There are fewer grocery stores, fewer green spaces, Um, there's higher rates of lead poisoning in those neighborhoods. There is So anyway, this is how racism is impacting child development and health, just in this one component of a social determinant of health, which is neighborhood and built environment. If you live in a poisonous environment, that is going to affect your development, your behavior, and your health. Does that make sense? Next, We're gonna talk about the social determinant of health, which is social and community context and institutionalized racism. So there are many different facets of social and community context, but I'm just gonna focus on the uh, legal system. We know that there is um, over-policing in formerly redlined communities, right? And in communities that have large populations of black and Latinx um, residents and immigrant communities as well. Um, And so we know that police and other law enforcement officers in the research overwhelmingly have pro-white, anti-black and pro-light skin, anti-dark skin implicit racial bias. The literature also shows that police officers tend to adultify black girls and black boys, as we said with school teachers, perceiving them to be older and less innocent and needing less protection. And there's a much heavier police presence in black, Latinx and American Indian communities, which means that these communities become in contact with law enforcement officers in negative relationships in earlier ages and more frequently than white populations do in the United States. Um, And we know that Black and Latinx boys come in contact with the legal system at earlier ages. If you've heard of the school to prison pipeline, it starts with that. In fact, my husband um, showed me an article this morning out of Yahoo of a little boy who was six years old who picked a tulip on someone's lawn, was arrested and put in juvenile court because he picked a tulip. This is exactly, and we've seen many accounts in the news of black girls and boys being handcuffed just for having a temper tantrum in kindergarten. All of these are early contact with the criminal justice, I'm sorry, the criminal legal system in the United States We know when it comes to adult populations, uh, black and Latinx individuals are much likely, much more likely to be incarcerated than their white counterparts for the exact same crime or offense. Um, And they are actually less likely to be placed on, on, um, uh, I can't see the words down here. They're less likely to get probation compared to their white counterparts for the exact same offense. So when you look at social and community context, if you look at community policing, it is much more devastating to the lives of of Black and Latinx children and American Indian children as well. If we look at economic stability as a social determinant of health, we know that this is problematic, right? So when you look at, at institutionalized racism and interpersonal racism, it influences economic stability in Black and brown communities. So we know that Black and Latinx adolescents have much higher unemployment rates compared to their white peers in the summer. When all other factors are the same, like, you know, their demographics, their socioeconomic status, the neighborhoods they live in, they just have higher unemployment rates. We said this before that resumes with African-American sounding names like Jamal or Keisha or Latanya um, are 50 percent less likely to receive a callback for an interview compared to the same exact resume with a white sounding name like Kelly or Jack or Emma. We know that Black and Latinx adults have higher unemployment rates and underemployment rates compared to white counterparts. And this has really been exacerbated during the the COVID pandemic. Um, When you look at unemployment rates, for example, among Black populations, among Black parents, did y'all know that a Black man with no criminal history and a bachelor's degree is less likely to be hired on a job than a white man who dropped out of high school who has a felony on his record? What does that tell you? It tells you that there is intrinsic racism in the hiring practices um, and stability of, um, of our society across domains. And so if your parents have chronic unemployment, if your parents are living in concentrated poverty, that is gonna affect you as a child because it's gonna, your parents are gonna struggle to provide you with the healthcare that you need, with the educational interventions that you need, with the supports that you'd need outside enriching activities that help to build your development and behavior. And I'm sure you guys have heard of the black tax. So the black tax has evolved over time. Currently, like the 2020 use of the term black tax or minority tax has been expanded, is saying that you know, black professionals, Latino professionals have to take on this role of you know, being the anti-racist, you know. Um, advocates in their institutions, but black tax actually goes back for decades. This is a term used that refers actually to the goods and services costing more in lower income black and Latinx neighborhoods compared to higher income white neighborhoods. And if you've never noticed this, I'm going to invite you to just drive to a McDonald's in a predominantly black or Latinx community and just look at the number four, just look at the number four. I think that's the Big Mac, right? See how much it costs to get a number four in that neighborhood and then drive to an affluent predominantly white neighborhood in the suburbs and look at the number four. And I'm telling you, the number four is going to cost about $1.50 extra in the poor neighborhood. We know that people who live in poor Black and Latino neighborhoods pay more for their food. They pay more for their gas. Their gas prices are higher. They pay more for their utilities. They pay more for their insurance. They pay more for every single good and service that they have compared to affluent populations that live in the suburbs receiving the exact same service that is institutionalized structural racism y'all and that affects child development and behavior because parents have less um, income with a lower income they have to pay more money for their for daily needs so let's talk about reducing the the negative impact of racism on child health so when you know when we talk about changing the system of racism, in medical racism and white supremacy that we all live and taught and, and trained under. We're going to try to move from a colorblind racist system, which is what we're in right now, right? Where doctors in the medical institutions had no idea that racism was a problem until 2020, the summer 2020 George Floyd process, you know, protests. They just finally woke up. They had no idea that this was an issue. So traditionally, our institutions and in, in medicine have been overwhelmingly colorblind um and we want them to move to at least the next step which is being non-racist so this is so in colorblind you sleep you don't even realize racism is an issue non-racist you've woken up and you know it's a problem but you really don't think it's your problem you think it's somebody else's problem right like the doctors who didn't think that working with or in, or meeting with a, a pharmaceutical representative influenced the way they prescribed um medications right but they thought their colleagues were influenced but they weren't influenced so that that uh, thinking that it's somebody else's problem, that is sort of a non-racist view. But we want to move to an anti-racist view where you are actually woke. You recognize that racism is a problem, that you could very well be a part of the problem, and that we got to dismantle it in every single thing we do systematically every single day. So let's talk about race, addressing racism in child health. So the American Academy of Pediatrics published a policy statement on racism, and I this week, um, in fact, uh, earlier this morning read the policy statement on the health and care of American Indian and Alaskan Native children. I think it's an incredible important policy statement coming out of the AAP. Before dismantling racism in particular across the board, the policy statement from the AAP talks about optimizing workforce development, community engagement, research, and clinical practice. Um, Patricia Divine is amazing she's done um she's a psychologist that has done habit breaking interventions since like the 80s and for reducing implicit racial bias she took all of her research and strategies for habit for prejudice habit uh, for habit breaking and called it the prejudice habit breaking interventions she's got several uh, articles that describe this intervention what she has participants do is engage in these five activities one is called stereotype replacement so If you say a stereotype about a group of people or you hear a stereotype of a group of people, you actually reframe that statement. So let's say, for example, you're watching the news with your kid and they say uh, a criminal was um, was um, somebody is is a suspect in a particular crime. If they state the race of the criminal, that usually means the person was a person because they were black or Latino. If they omit the race of the criminal, very often that person was white. Okay, so that's something that you can point out to your child or even to yourself and say, okay, let's, let's, let's change this stereotype. People across the board create crimes or commit crimes equally. There is no crime gene in people of color, right? Uh, Counter stereotype imaging. So let's say they show the image of a person, let's say who is a, a, who is a victimized by a crime, it's a person of color, and the person that committed the crime was white. They would show the prom picture of the white person that is accused of committing the crime and they'll show some old crazy looking facebook picture of the person of color that was victimized in the crime so it makes it look like the victim is actually the perpetrator the perpetrator is the victim right innocent so white innocence right so uh so the of stereotype imaging is where in your mind you flip the script right so one of my explicit racial biases is my fear of poor white people because poor white people engaged in most of the racial trauma that I experienced as a child and adolescent in the rural town I grew up in in Texas. So I have to have this counter stereotype image where I think about poor white people that I know who never mistreated me and treated me with kindness and respect and love and compassion. So that when I'm approaching the room of a patient who is from a rural town that has a long history of racial trauma against whites, I walk in that room with compassion and love and provide that poor white family with the same care i would give everybody else uh individuation is recognizing that members of a particular racial caste do not represent the whole racial caste, right so like not all black people are baptists so what you want to do is uh respect the individual characteristics traits beliefs and practices of a person within a group that's individuation now perspective taking actually requires what i call uh cross cultural empathy or cross racial empathy well you got to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and that is very hard to do for members of the dominant racial caste because they've never been in a position for most of, most folks in the dominant racial caste who identify as white have never been in a position where they have been the racial minority who has been oppressed time and again for the majority of their lives so it actually takes empathy and compassion most of us born in the united states we not we're not we don't have immigrant parents we're not immigrants. My family's been here for 10 generations. I'm generation seven. I don't know what it's like to be an immigrant, right? And so I have to have compassion to put myself in the perspective of my families who are immigrant families. And then increasing opportunities for contact is another strategy. And that means I'm not talking about just sitting next to somebody in the cafeteria chit-chatting for five minutes and now your best friend is Puerto Rican. That's not what I'm talking about. Research shows that white American adults actually have fewer um, friendships with non-white people than Blacks, Latinos, and Asians do. Blacks, Latinx, and Asian-American adults have more friendships with people that are not members of their racial group. And they have more friendships with whites than the counterpart. So the idea is to increase opportunities for for meaningful relationships with people that don't look like you, don't pray like you, don't talk like you or believe like you, right? That is really important because what that helps to do is reduce our implicit racial biases. So unfortunately, what uh, Dr. Devine's research has found is that these practices help to reduce implicit, uh, improve our knowledge of racism and bias, um, improve our skills in managing it, but it doesn't change our behavior. So we don't have any data to show about behavior changes in uh, implicit bias training. There are efforts to change the core competencies in the ACGME to include social determinants of health, racism being a social determinant of health. I was appointed to a task force with the American Board of Pediatrics. So we worked on changing one of the, uh, the entrustable professional activities for pediatric residencies and we have also worked on um writing questions that address issues of racism in healthcare. and finally when it comes to our medical journals we've got to decolonize the way we talk about um data right we're comparing across racial populations in fact in the policy statement on american indian health they talked about we've got to stop white centering right we compare everybody else's outcomes to whites as if white is the norm we should be comparing when we talk about race, it is not biological, it is a social category. So we got to just recognize it as a demographic factor, not a risk factor for disease. And then when we compare these demographic factors, we should compare them across all populations, not just using white centering. Does that make sense, y'all? So overall, we know that racism is a social determinant of health that undergirds every other social determinant of health. And all forms of racism affect the mental health, education, physical health outcomes of our children. And as pediatric providers, health care advocates, we need to be, we are responsible for helping to dismantle the system of racism and white supremacy within the little corner of the universe that we have. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.